Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California's recent surge in COVID-19 cases has some parents wondering how safe it is for kids to continue outdoor sports or organized outdoor play. While the state prohibits competitive games, in July it began allowing some team training and conditioning. We'll take stock of what we've learned so far from youth leagues and from schools doing PE or group play at recess about how to do it safely and how to apply those lessons at home. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Kids in youth sports leagues or whose parents have chosen in-person school have been participating in some form of group play or PE classes amid the pandemic. Sports and organized play build critical social skills as well as keep kids healthy. In this hour forum, we take stock of what we've learned so far about how kids can play together safely and if it's still safe given the state's recent surge in cases. Joining me is Michelle Serrano, Vice President of Field Operations for Playworks, an organization that creates opportunities for kids to play as safely as possible and advise school districts on recess and play. Welcome to Forum, Michelle Serrano. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at Stanford. Glad to have you here as well, Dr. Maldonado. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. And Michelle Serrano, I will actually start with you. You know, for those elementary schools that have gone back in person, can you paint us a picture of what a school playground or what PE might look like now, how it's changed to deal with the pandemic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, certainly some things have changed and then we are seeing some similarities when it comes to the smiles and, and laughter that students are experiencing. But um, in this in this moment, we're, we have schools where you can step out onto the playground and you will see uh, clearly marked play areas that either maybe it's like a circle of cones, it's uh, tape, chalk, paint to kind of distinguish the game and what's being played in that area so students can quickly identify that. There typically is also a playground map that shows students what the options are for that day and you'll see, um, you know, a lot of thought and intention going to how students even transition out of class into the recess time, you know, with fun things like walk like a penguin or do your dinosaur roar so that they're engaged in 
another movement um, or mindset, you know, to try to avoid all of the, the, the handholding and hugging that they once did. And then they come out to a number of games um, that are physically distant, but still socially engaging. You'll see things like uh, relay races and you know, with rock, paper, scissors to, to resolve a conflict. Um, you know, cooperative games like red light, green light, or games where students are listening to an instruction um, and following that, uh, you know, following their coach in that movement or that action. So there's still a number of ways that students are able to step onto the playground, um, be like I was saying, socially distant, but still are physically distant, but still socially engaged. And at the elementary school level, they are wearing masks as well as they do these activities? Yes, yes, they are. And you mentioned that you sort of coned off all of these separate areas. What is that for? Is that to have sort of small groups and very distinct activities? And how do you determine how to do that and, and yeah. how to make that as safe as possible? Yeah, so it's definitely something that we work side by side with each of our partner schools on determining what space do they have available? What systems have they set up? What groups um, typically, you know, we're seeing that's Schools are um, much more confident and clear on keeping groups and keeping students within their small groups, within their learning environments, you know, within their grade levels. Um, and then we create the opportunity for those students to step out into the playground uh, with those groups, but have a very inviting and engaging space to do that in um, so that that same intention and, and um, proactive, you know, approach towards safety is is followed outside as well, but in a way that is disguised in a very positive and engaging environment, like I was saying, with colorful cones to mark off areas, signs, positive language chalked out on the playground, um, encouraging, you know, air high fives um, or pass a smile to a friend versus, you know, giving giving those in-person high fives or um, just kind of as, as, like we were saying, these proactive strategies yeah. for, for how to keep them engaged. What schools are you working with right now? Yeah, so we have a number of schools um, across the state, both in Southern California and Northern California. In Southern California, it's primarily um, LUSD, along with a couple of other school districts in um, the Inland Empire and San Bernardino County that all right now are currently um, virtually offering education and engagement for their students. And then in Northern California, we have uh, schools in East Palo Alto, um, Oakland Unified, Sunnyvale, um, also in West Contra Costa and Woodside. So mm. kind of a handful of schools that we're, we're seeing similar approaches and sometimes and, and definitely, you know, differences within their their platforms and their schedules. And it sounds like, as you were saying earlier, that the reactions of kids is still very positive, you know, like before times where they're not necessarily, especially in the way that you've designed the activities and tried to encourage positive things, like rather than saying, don't give a high five, because it's, you know, you're saying give an air high five kind of thing, that that they are really benefiting from it and, and not, uh, not responding to what feel like new limitations. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were so, so mindful as alongside, as I was saying, our educators and our school partners that so many students haven't been able to be in person engaging with their peers and their friends and their teachers. And so, you know, returning to an environment that was filled with, you know, don't touch this and don't go there and, and do these things was something that, you know, we really um, 
took the opportunity to work with them to say, how can we create, um, you know, a space where they can still feel show up, feel connected, engaged, and have fun. Certainly Mm -hmm. experience some joy for so many uh, students who haven't had the chance for some of them to play in person or outside uh, since March. Yvonne Maldonado, how important is this kind of group play, team play for kids, young kids especially? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's pretty clear from uh, the American Academy of Pediatric Standing, as well as most of us as pediatric providers, that we really know that children need to be engaged in physical activity. It's really important for their physical health and mental health and well-being. Um, It really does help them engage um, each with each other in social skills as well. So it's really an important um, opportunity for them throughout the year to be able to um, build on their um, their physical and intellectual and social development. So what can happen to kids who don't get enough of this kind of interaction and physical activity? Well, I, you, there are a number of studies over the years demonstrating that children who don't get enough physical activity really just they, they do have a different, uh, you know, they they're, they're can lag behind in development and they can also wind up with physical manifestations, you know, increasing obesity rates, for example, risk for uh, diabetes and other um, metabolic uh, disorders. And so uh, it is important for children on the long run to make sure that they have a regular uh, physical um, uh, regimen of some kind of outdoor activity, exercise, um, and I think in particular these days, um, the outdoor activities are, are helpful, especially uh, given what we know about potential transmission of COVID in indoor settings and um, the uh, exertion, the physical exertion and, and heavy breathing and yelling that could potentially um, provide uh, increased transmission of the virus in indoor settings, especially those that aren't well ventilated. Right. So that brings me to my next question, which is how safe is, you know, outdoor play? There are a lot of youth leagues that have been doing practices and conditioning and training, but would like to start doing competitive games. I mean, how safe is it? What do we know about it, especially right now? When one of the things that we constantly hear is that we have to keep track of, you know, the amount of virus that's in the community, how much virus is really circulating to be able to help assess risk levels. So can you talk about safety of these times of these types of activities? Yeah, so I think, uh, unfortunately, there really is very little known because we uh, have only been through the summer, spring and summer and fall. The winter, of course, in many parts of the country and even here in, the, in California is going to be a little more challenging because it is colder. There may be rain or other um, climate issues that keep people from participating as actively in sports outside. Um, But it really is a concern uh, uh, around transmission. We know, for example, um, there's one example that people bring up because it's hard to really track this at a national scale, but there was um, a hockey game in which uh, one individual, um, these were older adults, uh, older adolescents and adults, and uh, and in that group, uh, one individual in the hockey on one hockey team actually wound up infecting other people on the opposing team. So, despite all of the um, you know the other uh, practices, you know, hockey is an intense sport. There's a lot of heavy 
breathing and yelling in close contact. And there were several people infected and at least 14 people infected that we know of and potentially others who didn't get tested and were asymptomatic. So we only have that one example um, as of for indoor activities. Um, I do think that as we get more into a high prevalence situation, it's really just an increase in risk for exposure. So close contact um, without masking in particular is going to be a risk. And I think uh, not maybe not scaling back into close competitive sports uh, might be a better idea, especially given the um, climate, uh, you know, during the winter time, as well as the, incre the really increasing surges. It's really unprecedented uh, surges that we're seeing all over the country, including here in the Bay Area. Right. And so this is even if you're outdoors, even if these activities, games, practices are outdoors. Well, I think that would be the case. Yeah. I mean, I think just having, especially if kids can't mask. So if they're not masking, I think that is really a concern because they can obviously expel droplets that can infect other kids. And if they're coming into close contact, um, we just know that the numbers are really, really high right now in all age groups. So then are you actually recommending that people take a pause in terms of organized group play, that schools be more careful about kids during recess or, yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, I'd be interested to hear what Michelle has to say, but frankly, I don't think we should stop a physical activity. I think we just have to be much more careful and mindful about the kind of activities that the children are engaged in and make sure that they're not really coming into that close contact. Hmm. We're talking with Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at Stanford, and Michelle Serrano, vice president of field operations for PlayWorks, which creates opportunities for kids to play outdoors as safely as possible. We know that play and active outdoor play is really critical for kids' development, but there are a lot of questions now with the rising surge in cases as to how to make that as safe as possible. Share your questions and thoughts. 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. Email address forum at kqed.org and at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Nina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about elementary age kids organized outdoor play during the pandemic, like sports, PE and recess, their safety and some ideas for what could be some good games with less contact. We're talking with Yvonne Maldonado, pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at Stanford and Michelle Serrano of Playworks. And you, our listeners, are with us. How are you keeping your kids physically active? You can share your tips. Are your kids involved in some form of group outdoor play or team sports? How has it been for your kid if they haven't been able to do team sports anymore? And uh, what do you want to know about organizing outdoor play for your kids' tips and best practices? Again, the number 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Michelle Serrano, I'm wondering what kinds of games 
are you suggesting to school districts examples of, of safe outdoor games and activities with less contact, as Dr. Maldonado is suggesting? Yeah, definitely. Um, I can share. So just the other day, I was talking with one of our coaches um, that's working at a school site in person and Coach Stephanie, and she was sharing how much fun um, a small group of students had playing the game of Switch at recess. And Switch is a game um, where it can be played with as few as four or five students and um, imagine sort of the setup of four corners, a box or a four square court where um, each of them are standing in a designated area. And when the coach or the student yells out the word switch, they're finding their way to a new designated spot. So very easy to keep, um, you know, the physical distance of, of uh, students, you know, not coming into close contact with each other. Very easy to yeah, create either small or large spaces where they can run and get that heart rate up and be outside and, but also still feel like they're part of a game alongside other students. Um, so that's a game that we've seen again played in small spaces, smaller spaces if the, you know, if it's limited outside or um, you know, much bigger grassy areas depending on the space available. So games like that, we're also seeing, like I was mentioning, relay races. Uh, we have a game called Rochambeau Relay, which is where students are playing rock, paper, scissors with each other and we have coaches designating the areas they stand in by putting hula hoops on the ground. And you can, you know, you know, when you're moving to the next area, if you've successfully won that round of rock, paper, scissors, then you go to the next hula hoop area. So it's, um, it's really great to think strategically about how to best support their play opportunities, um, even under these circumstances. Well, we're joined now by Dr. Dan Cooper, Professor of Pediatrics at UC Irvine. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Cooper. Thank you. And I invited you on because I understand that you are involved in a study that is looking at virus transmission, infection transmission in schools. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Like, what are you trying to determine with this study? Well, at the, thanks for having us on. At the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, a group of us who had been doing research in the past on uh, school issues. For example, our group had been studying the pandemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes, particularly in lower socioeconomic schools. We realized that the, the problem of closing the schools and then opening them would be enormous. And little did we realize how enormous it would become. Uh, and uh, we actually put a paper that was published in Journal Pediatrics. And we realized there were huge gaps in our knowledge and we needed to understand uh, what was going on with viral transmission in kids did they transmit to each other and did they transmit to adults, which are critical questions for school reopening? And is it safer to be in school or out of school when, like right, right now, we're experiencing a surge in the country? I mean, there's no guarantee that just because kids are not in school that they won't transmit one to another and get it from adults. And so we actually got support from uh, University of California at Irvine, from Children's Hospital of Orange County, and from Orange County Healthcare Agency to study viral transmission in four schools that represent the different kinds of schools. So one is a private school that deals predominantly with middle and upper middle class kids. Three of the schools are in the Santa Ana Orange, which is a lower socioeconomic, predominantly minority area of our, of our county where the surge has been really, really excessive. Um, and one of the schools is a school which deals predominantly with children with special needs like Down syndrome where the idea of physical distancing is really almost impossible to achieve because of the nature of the interaction of teachers. 
we uh, we are we we went through an IRB. We've had to have consent. We've had amazing responsiveness from the schools, even the kids that are not attending in person, uh, and the teachers. And one of the aspects of our study was to look not only at nasal uh, swabs for uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus and for other uh, co-circulating respiratory viruses, but we asked the kids that would be willing if they would donate a little bit of blood so we could look at the antibodies and other aspects. And about 80% of the kids, to, to our really uh, uh, great, uh, great satisfaction, have agreed. So phase one is complete. Uh, we've studied about 200 children and about uh, 50 or so of their teachers. We're going to be going back to these schools in a couple of weeks. We have this sad and unfortunate experiment of nature that when we originally did it, our numbers uh, in Orange County and throughout the state were low, and now they're going to be very high. And it's going to be very interesting and we think illustrative to see what we're seeing in the kids at, a, at these two different time points. Yes, but so far it sounds like from your earlier uh, study that, or the earlier results, that you did not see a lot of spread at schools. We did not see a lot of spread at schools. Um, I don't think we had a single positive. We did, and our, our, our tests were working because we did see some rhinovirus. You know, we did see some of the more common viruses. So, you know, it's not like we were just getting total zeros. We also found about six or 7% of the kids that were in the higher impacted areas, like in Santa Ana, California, had evidence of prior exposure through antibodies. And um, the other thing that we did was, you know, it's one thing to tell a school uh, or kids to practice uh, mitigation efforts like face mask wearing and physical distancing. It's another thing to see if it actually works. And so we, we adapted an existing tool that had been used to quantify physical activity in schools called SOPLAY, which stands for Systematic Observation of Play and Leisure Activity in Youth. And we said, gee, why don't we add to this direct observational approach, looking at uh, the fidelity of face mask wearing and physical distancing. And we're now in those four schools and we're actually able to quantify the uh, success with which mitigation procedures are occurring. So much so that the, the staff at the, the, the schools want to learn how to do this. So, so you're so saying the mitigation measures are effective, that they are working based on... Yeah, we'd like results. to be able to quantify them. You know, it's it, it's one thing to say, hey, do this. It's another thing to say if, if people are actually doing it. And look, we've all experienced going to the supermarket and people, so, you know, wearing masks incorrectly, right? And so, so uh, what about physical distancing? And your discussion just now about you know, uh, uh, physical activity on the playground and in recess. Uh, can kids and do kids really maintain the physical distancing that's necessary? Yeah. So we think we have a way of actually quantifying that. And, and you mentioned that one of the schools you're at has kids with special needs. I mean, are there any special considerations that we need to keep in mind for children uh, with intellectual or uh, different developmental issues on the playground, at recess, at PE, things like that? Yes. So, of course, um, all public schools uh, in California and throughout the country are mandated to care for these children. There are uh, PE programs that are set up especially. But the special consideration is that almost anything you do with these kids requires close physical contact, much more so than you would have for kids that didn't have these needs. That's point number one. So, you know, are there special PPE considerations that we really need to address for the uh, teachers and the aides who are dealing with these kids. 
the, the good news is we know from studies that have been done throughout hospitals in California and the country that uh, even when you're in a COVID ward, if the healthcare workers wear their PPE correctly, there's really, really rare, rare transmission of virus from these patients. And, and so that at least there is a glimmer of hope there that if we uh, deal correctly with the, the aides and the teachers, that they can, even if they assume that the kids may be, uh, have been maybe carriers, that they can protect themselves. And that's very important. And we mm-hmm. want to study that as well. Dr. Dan Cooper, Professor of Pediatrics at UC Irvine, thanks so much for sharing your study. And I know it's ongoing, and I'd be very curious to learn uh, what you find as you start to do this in the schools during the surge that we're in right now and how that that could affect things. Really appreciate having you on. Thanks so much, Dr. Cooper. Thank you. And let me go to some of our listeners who are calling in. I'll start with Andy in Carmel. Hi, Andy. Hey, how are you? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, I just had a couple of thoughts. I, I coach at the high school level a contact sport where physical distancing or social distancing is impossible. The kids are literally in each other's faces in this sport. And um, so I, and I have two teenagers myself that, are, that, that play that sport and sort of are suffering from the time and distance away from playing that sport at an intense level. Uh, looking back, I think this period is going on a lot longer than I would like. It's annoyingly long, and I'm sort of hitching my wagon to, um, you know, vaccines and treatment measures that can address, you know, um, infection rates. However, um, having two teenagers myself that are specialized athletes and having and coaching a sport where specialization is becoming more and more prevalent, it has given the kids some time to connect with their bodies in different ways while remaining active, even if it's been on the individual level. Hmm. And so it's sort of allowed them to maybe take a mental break from sort of being on that specialized sports train. Um, again, nobody wants to be back coaching more than I do. I think my kids would want to warp speed to, you know, being back in the playing field. But looking back and looking at, you know, ways that they've been able to even just connect with themselves and look at their identities differently from, hey, I'm, you know, so-and-so the athlete versus I'm so-and-so who's healthy and I have an active body and an active lifestyle and sort of taking their self-esteem from other, learning to take their self-esteem from other avenues because they've been forced to. And so they're, you know, again, as annoyingly long as this has been, there have been some positives to forcing kids to sort of reorient and look at their approach to their sport that they love differently um, and maybe going forward. Uh, So that's been sort of my observations over the last year. Wow. Well, thanks so much for for sharing that. And what what sport do you coach? So I coach water polo. So, Mm. again, it's a contact sport. Kids are literally, you know, in each other's faces. There's, you know... (laughs) multiple instances of transmission. So it's, you know, again, like I said, I'm sort of hitching my wagon to um, the, you know, uh, hopefully vaccines and treatment measures that can address, you know, any flare-ups of the virus. But um, there's not, there's no getting around the way that we practice or the way that we play in terms of the closeness and, you know, intimacy. It's, it's like wrestling or, you know, um, uh, you know, any other sport that involves that physical contact. So 
um, that's not going to change. Well, Andy, thanks so much for for sharing all of that. And it inspires me to think of a couple of things, uh, Dr. Maldonado. One of them, of course, is that we know that California right now is one of a handful of sports that's prohibiting youth sports games, training, conditioning, things like that are allowed. And there has been some uh, suggestion that they will further delay guidance related to games as well and allowing games. First, do you agree with this? And second, based on what Andy's saying about the potential benefits and value of the training process of maybe um, in terms of a little bit of a reset or, or a break from from the intensity of competition, how how we can benefit and enjoy that time, even if kids are dying to get out there and compete. Yeah, you know, I think uh, right now is a, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but we are in a surge that we have not seen before. And it's a really startling surge. And it is primarily being driven by young adults around the state and around the country, actually. So um, these are teachers, coaches, ages, you know, uh, older high school students, et cetera. And I do think this is the right thing to do at this time, at least until we understand a little bit more. We really don't understand how, why the virus doesn't affect children in the same way as it does in adults. I'm also conducting my own school study as well as a household transmission study and working with one of the large school districts in California to see uh, once they reopen how we can do that. But all of those things involve very intensive testing. And this is something that unfortunately we don't have available yet. And so we all know, I know some of the students have talked about, well, you know, the NBA has a bubble, ML, the um, MLB has a bubble at NFL, et cetera. And even the Pac-12, for example, our conferences have bubbles, but they have extensive resources to be testing for this constant contact. And I'm telling you, these kids are getting really intensive protocols, which you just cannot do for um, youth sports. And I think at this point, it really does make sense until we get a better handle on this, or there's a better way to protocolize and operationalize routine screening in a really much finer way. Um, that that what, uh, what your uh, caller said is really heartening, that the kids can do other things. And I think Michelle has also pointed out, there's a number of other ways that children and uh, young adults can really engage in new ways to uh, stay physically fit and stay physically aware of, of their own um, capacities and and uh, build build on those until until we do have some good interventions. And just as a quick follow, because you you were mentioning that we really don't understand why it seems like transmission is lower among kids, especially under ten. What do we know, though? I know there's a lot we don't know, um, but so far the data are bearing out that transmission, or maybe not transmission, but essentially kids who show symptoms, right, of COVID-19, it's, it's far less in children under 10, correct? Right. So we know from the national data, and this is from the American Academy, they're the only group that has pulled the national data together on children. We know that now there are over a million children who have documented infections, uh, but they represent maybe 10 to 15% of overall infections in the country and about that number of um, hospitalizations as well. And their hospitalization rate is pretty low and the mortality rate is extremely low, not to minimize it, but it's probably on the order of what we would see for influenza every year um, in children. So 
there are some risks there, but they're not, um, they're not, they're not as high as in adults. And that's what we do know. So we know kids can get infected. They can infect others. We know that from childcare center studies uh, that children have been able to infect uh, their family members. We have a case, for example, of an eight month old who was uh, able to, uh, their, their pa the parents were both infected from that child who attended a daycare center. But what's interesting is primarily what we've seen is that the primary source of infections in settings, school settings or daycare settings is primarily the staff, not always the children. So there may be something different and there's a number of theories. Some are based on uh, maybe receptors for the virus being uh, less, less dense on children, pediatric um, uh, respiratory cells. But there's also data that perhaps the immune response in kids is a little different or different enough that it may uh, mute the ability of children to get sick, but it doesn't maybe doesn't account for why children may not be as likely to get infected, especially the very young. So there's a lot more to learn, uh, but but so far pretty decent news. I would say that one concern that we still continue to ponder is the risk of heart disease once children have become infected. We know that's true in adults, and for the few children who've had the severe more the more severe end of disease that the heart, the heart risks or the cardiac risks are the ones that people are, are most concerned about. And again, Dr. Yvonne Maldonado is a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at Stanford. Michelle Serrano is vice president of field operations for PlayWorks. We know that young kids have been doing sports, team sports, organized outdoor play now for some time at schools and in sports leagues with rare outbreaks. So what are we learning about how to do outdoor organized play safely? How can we apply these activities at home to keep kids healthy, especially right now as the state experiences a surge? Share with us how you're keeping your kids physically active and what questions you have that 866-733-6786. And we'll take your calls right after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about outdoor play. We know how important it is to children's healthy development, but how risky are outdoor sports or group sports right now amid this winter surge that we're experiencing? What are questions you have for Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, our pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at Stanford, or Michelle Serrano, our expert in play, vice president of field operations for PlayWorks, which advises school districts on how to do recess and play safely during the pandemic. What would you like to know about organizing outdoor or play for kids? Maybe you're an educator or coach. What are you doing to keep the kids you teach engaged in physical activity while they can't compete? And how has it been for your kids not to actually compete in sports anymore? Again, 866-733-6786 is the number. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. And Eric in San Francisco, join us. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm the father of a, a seven-year-old. And uh, uh, she is not in school, um, but I was asking about uh, individual play dates, kind of a one-on-one -on -one thing. Is this something that can be done safely, or do you see that as a uh, non-essential uh, additional risk? Mm. Michelle Serrano, thoughts for Eric? 
Yeah, I think, um, hi, Eric. I think we are seeing at schools, uh, groups of small, you know, small groups of students that are grouped together, like we were saying in the classroom that then come out and play in small groups outside. Um, so I, I would, you know, defer to Dr. Maldonado also, but I would say there are certainly um, lots of activities you could offer to two students or two kids that are playing together outside, um, you know, that are physically distant, that uh, we have available. We have a number of free resources on our website, which is playworks.org. Um, we also have, we've grouped our, some of our favorite Playworks games into what we refer to as a safe return to play guide. Um, and it lists the games and has links to how to play them. Um, and they're kind of in a low, medium and high risk category, just as, as parents and educators and schools prepare to return. But certainly I know there's a lot that goes into what happens, you know, where are those students or kids before they come together and play. But I definitely think there are a number of games that could be offered. Well, Eric, thanks. I don't know, Dr. Maldonado, if you have anything you want to add. Well, I would just be very careful um, about play dates to make sure, as you heard, that we, you know, that you know something about the, it, it does get a little personal. I know that this is a really strange time where we have to be very respectful of each other's privacy, but at the same time, measure the risks that we have among them, our own family. So one of the guidances is to be very respectful, but to say, you know, um, are you, if this is somebody you haven't been with before, then I'd really want to know a little bit more about who that family is in contact with. Um, are they being safe and careful because the child could, you know, be, uh, could potentially be infected or infectious. And uh, in general, uh, and I think Michelle has mentioned this as well, if you have small pods of people who you already have an established relationship with, that's probably the best way. So one or two children uh, and families where you really have some kind of an understanding about how limited you are in terms of your outside exposures. And then you can have your those children um, engaging in activities together. That would probably be the better way. And just to make sure there's some ground rules. Well, thanks, Eric, for the call. And, and speaking of which, Michelle uh, Serrano, I know that uh, you have have talked about cohorting as an important way of controlling outbreaks at schools. Can you explain how that works and give us some examples? Yeah, I think what, what we've learned from our school districts and our school partners, how they structure it is, you know, it's certainly, um, there's been a number of surveys and the ways that they've engaged. Um, I think all of their parents and community members is remarkable as we're all um, kind of working through this together for the first time. And so, um, the way we've seen our school partners do it is by grouping students, um, again, typically based on their grade levels and within small groups, within classrooms, and then kind of keeping them um, within that same small cohort throughout the day, whether it's in for their in-person, um, in-class instruction, or as they transition to outside play, or as they transition to, to their lunchtime. So it's um, we've seen schools take great caution and measure and um, how they're grouping those students together and then how they kind of create their own community and their own little um, cohort, like we were saying, throughout the course of the, the days and the weeks. And of course, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, hybrid schedules and different students coming in together for on certain days. So um, tons of tons of innovation and response from our school partners going into how they thoughtfully uh, bring students back onto campus. 
Well, this listener writes, when we were in the orange tier, I organized an event to bring together a group of eight families in a parking lot. We have mixed age children and some smaller ones have trouble maintaining distance and wearing masks. We are so starved for gathering. I thought I'd organize a safe outdoor event. Now I'm thinking of canceling any guidance. Dr. Maldonado, before you also answer that listener's question, if you have guidance to share, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this segment is just how much we're really asking parents to do. I mean, to some extent, we are asking them to sort of undertake some sophisticated sort of risk assessment under potentially very high stakes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I do think that it's really confusing and I understand that. And unfortunately, part of why this is confusing is that we just don't have any answers. Um, And it's really, uh, a lot of it is, uh, well, there's two major factors. One is what is the risk in your community? So right now we know that pretty much in the entire country right now, the risk is pretty high that you're gonna come into contact with somebody who uh, is infected because uh, we're seeing this surge. And so, you know, five to 10% of people that, you know, are gonna be infected more or less. So if you're talking about you know, one out of 20 people, if you get a group of 20 people together, there will be one person infected. And that's statistical, obviously. Then the second issue is what's your degree of risk tolerance? Some people really think, well, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, we are pretty healthy. I don't really see that the risk uh, one in 20 is, is, is not a bad, not a bad thing for me. Um, I'm going to be very careful. And I think I can minimize that risk and others just aren't willing to take that risk, especially people with conditions that could put them at higher uh, risk for serious outcomes. So it is very difficult. I think it really has to be an individual level. If you, for example, have put all this time and effort into organizing people, and that's already a big feat in and of itself, all by yourself, and you really trust this group and you can keep the bigger kids away and you know, the small ones, you, know, you can try to uh, do what you can. I mean, I think Uh, you can go a long way to, uh, you know, making sure you can clean their hands, make sure that they're as much as possible staying apart from the other kids or making sure they clean hands before they approach their own family members. So at least they can, you know, minimize any potential transmissions. And I think it is healthy to try to get out there, but if you feel like it's too big a group or maybe some of the kids um, are just not going to be able to, uh, to behave in the way that we would like them to. And obviously they're young children, they, that's just their natural tendency. Then, you know, I think it, it is a, it's a risk calculation. So it is, and I feel, you know, my kids are grown up, but I can imagine I, I, what, what it's like today to try to have to juggle that and do what's best for your kids and your families, especially during the holidays. So I would just say, do what you, you know, go with your own instinct around what you understand about these other families, recognizing that we are trying to keep people apart because the risk is just going up. I mean, we are double, at least double the risk of encountering an infected person right now. Well, Mike asks, for outdoor sports like soccer, what precautions should kids take to stay safe while practicing? Michelle Sorano, what do you recommend for sports like soccer or games like that at schools in terms of precautions that kids should take to stay safe? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're fortunate enough to have um, a large game library of, of games that actually don't have any equipment. And so we know when students are not um, required to 
share this, a same piece of equipment or potentially touch one ball and then pass it to another uh, friend, then of course um, that already feels less risky, right? So I think we're really focused on encouraging our schools to, to um, focus in those areas, especially with younger students. There's, there's just so many opportunities to, to have meaningful play um, even in the absence of equipment. But certainly when you think about games that require equipment, things like soccer and if um, students have their own access to their own individual ball and can do more like skills building activities or actions and kind of stay in a designated area um, versus playing a more traditional version of the sport where um, of course passing with your feet is better than passing with your hands. Um, but we, we do know even with soccer, right? There is, there are throw-ins and goalies. So they're just different layers for, um, for, you know, schools and parents and educators to think through. Um, and that's where hopefully we can help them kind of find what options make the most sense for, for their play spaces and their age groups. And Michelle Serrano, any thoughts on this or has this come up when you're talking with schools? The listener writes, advice on avoiding confrontation when encountering grownups who aren't respecting children's play spaces, such as playgrounds and fields. I feel like the communication piece of this is very important at all levels. <laughs> yes, I mean, definitely. And we talk about all the great skills you do learn um, by playing by playing, and, you know, your cooperative skills and your listening skills. Conflict resolution is certainly one that we learn through play. But I think, yeah, exactly. I think if we can come to a place of, like, respectful communication and acknowledge what everybody's trying to accomplish on a shared space, uh, we haven't seen, we haven't seen, you know, much conflict there, especially when, we can all agree the priority, you know, with having kids, you know, kids anywhere have access to safe play. And when all else fails, we always encourage um, a good old fashioned rock, paper, scissors battle. Again, Michelle Serrano is <laughs> vice president of field operations for PlayWorks, an organization that creates opportunities for kids to play as safely as possible and has been advising school districts on how to effectively organize recess and play. Dr. Yvonne Maldonado is a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at Stanford. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Join the conversation 866-733-6786. Let me go to Mike in Menlo Park. Hi, Mike. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you have any advice at the other end of the spectrum for um, the needs of college athletes who you guys had touched on it earlier. They've been in a bubble in lots of, lots of instances where they've been on campus and subject to training and testing and all that kind of thing. But now that they're home, they're home for six weeks. You know, they can do personal conditioning, but they also need to keep training in their sports skills, and that's going to require training partners. So I'm, I'm curious what kind of risk assessment and other kind of mitigations we should be looking at. I mean, we're reintegrating our own student athlete here at our house. Um, you know, so we're doing some sequestering and everybody's wearing masks and we're waiting for test results to come back, but the training has to continue and we're looking for, you know, how, how he does that best on an ad hoc basis. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Von I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what Michelle says, but yeah, certainly, I've been involved here with the PAC-12 and uh, just uh, uh, helping them understand some of the uh, infectious disease and epi epidemiologic principles. Um, there are, as, I, as you've probably heard me say earlier, there are just so many protocols in place. It's a really uh, whole separate infrastructure that has been set up for our student athletes. And so 
I really would turn back to the coaches for the individual sports. Um, if these are students who are in an organized division or, uh, or uh, intramural uh, activities that they should have some guidance from their team um, coaches. Cause I personally think that uh, whatever they're doing should probably involve a lot of um, individual training and they would probably need some guidance as to how to do that over the six week holidays. Usually um, the coaches, if anything, are pretty proscriptive about what they want their athletes to do. My two, two of my three children were uh, really intensely into uh, sports in high school and college. And my younger one was theater. So different kind of activity there, but, um, but they had regimens worked out. So I would really do that. If you have any questions, I think talking to somebody like Michelle's group or even to your local pediatric um, provider or uh, uh, medical provider to find out more information about what is acceptable. You wanna keep them obviously in condition because uh, you know, reduce the risk of injuries when they come back. Um, so I, I think that would be the main thing. And of course the distancing piece is really important. If they're gonna, if they're, if you're in a place, obviously they're in California, but if they are somewhere else where they can't be outside, then you know how do you exercise properly? I mean, running is easy in any weather, just about unless you're in a blizzard. But um, other uh, other conditioning may need to be done in a safe space where there's nobody else around and decrease risk of potential transmissions. Well, thanks, Mike, for the call. Let me go to Douglas in San Leandro. Hi, Douglas. Good morning. Uh, I have a 12 and a 14 year old at home, and um, you know they're missing their friends. They're missing sports. Uh, they're socially distanced at school. Uh, we've tried. You know we've done the the distance birthday party and the distance mask uh, biking at uh, in Richmond. Uh, but I'm wondering if your guests have have seen this new study out of out of Princeton, which studied a couple provinces in the south of India, and seems to indicate that contrary to the uh, political lore that the children might actually be serving a role as super spreaders. It's, it's definitely given me some pause, and I'm wondering uh, what they might think uh, it, it means in terms of trying to arrange uh, outdoor hmm. sports. Dr. Maldonado, are you familiar with this study? No, I haven't seen that study, but I uh, personally am not a big fan of the word super spreader because it's just a catch-all phrase. That means we don't really know what's going on, but somehow there was an outbreak or there's just clusters. So until we really understand what we mean by super spreaders, uh, we don't, I don't really think that most of the people in the field think there's a kind of person who's a super spreader, but rather there may be events or environmental factors that allow for increased transmission. So what we thought were quote unquote super spreading events were basically places where there was poor ventilation, people weren't wearing masks, um, there wasn't social distancing. So these are just a combination of factors. And I, I again, I didn't read the paper that uh, was referred to, but I do think that we, if we can avoid those kinds of events, I, I have not seen uh, risks um, of mass uh, exposures and infections when people are taking those precautions. So I suspect that there may have been some breaches in precautions, but again, I, I can't speak directly to this issue. And I don't think children, there's just no evidence that children are at higher risk for transmitting to others uh, than, um, 
than others. All things being equal. Now, remember, you have a 12 and a 14 year old. Sometimes we, what we're hearing is, you know, people sneak out to their go visit their friends. They, you know, they're they are starved for attention. I'm not saying that's what's happening in here in this case, but you know, the, the, it is more likely for the older kids to try to um, behave in certain events and not in others. And there is a study showing among contact tracing of, in fact, uh, people who are exposed that not wearing a mask uh, is, uh, or wearing a mask sometimes is equally as effective as not wearing a mask. So, uh, so and keeping a distance of at least uh, three to six feet is actually very, very effective. And sometimes washing your hands is actually better than not. So the point here is that if you sometimes wear a mask, you almost might not wear a mask at all. And I don't want to say it that way, but um, I just think that the events are linked to um, probably practices more than individual biological factors. Well, Michelle Serrano, in the last 10 seconds, I know you have a three and five year old, a pro tipper trying to keep little kids to keep their masks on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've been surprised, not just in my family, but across schools, how well they um, do respond to similarly wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, you know, clear your plate after you eat dinner. So I think it is they're they're remarkable at the way that they can respond to um, the encouragements that we offer. Well, Michelle Serrano, Yvonne Maldonado, thanks to both of you for coming on and talking with us. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments and to Polly Stryker for producing this segment. I'm Mina Kim. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.